We're going to have a look now at 1 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and I want to particularly talk about how God worked in this whole business of Israel wanting to have a king. Now, to, to sum up what I want to try to uh, explain, it seems to me that God ultimately gives you what you really want, but he works all the same in your life that even if you make a wrong decision that he tries and tries to bring you back to the path that he wants you to take but even if you do go with that way that he he doesn't want he still wants to work with you because he he hungers and thirsts for relationship and because of that he's willing to go with that which is less than ideal and so in this whole thing about them wanting to have a king he could have said look I am your king and I am your judge and yet you say that we want to have a king a human king and a human judge this is back in chapter 8 verse 20 that our king may judge us well in the Psalms we read that Yahweh he is our king and he is our judge and yet they just rejected that God could legitimately have said to them well okay then that's the end of that then see you later you reject me as your king okay but although it pained him he still worked through this system of a human king and we can see when it comes to David he develops this idea to eventually end in in, in the Lord Jesus as the the ultimate king of Israel it's rather similar it seems to me with what happened with the temple God said I don't want a temple but David was obsessed I think we can say with the idea of building a physical temple and God said I don't want it but okay David just drove ahead with this idea despite Nathan clearly explaining to him that God does not dwell in these physical structures and so okay Solomon builds the temple and the glory of God still comes and descends and dwells in the temple and God clearly worked through the temple system but this was not his ideal level if you like and I find this a wonderful thing that God is so eager to work with us and very often we encounter people in our lives, in our spiritual walk especially, who maybe don't quite get up to the level that they should do. And we have a, a choice whether to carry on working with them or to say, look here, if you do that, or, or you live in that sort of relationship, see you later. And I think we have to be guided by how God has historically worked with his people and of course how actually if you're honest if you really know yourself how God has worked with you now God seeks to bring people to the level that he wants them on but he is prepared to make concessions to human weakness and to carry on working with people and in fact the whole of the Bible all this history that we've got is really God doing just that continuing to work and to try to work with uh, with Israel so then, really, this uh, sad story of them wanting a king starts in chapter 8. And you might just like to turn back to 1 Samuel 8. And God tells them the sort of person this king uh, will be. And he says there in verse, uh, verse 11, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them unto himself for his chariots and to be his horsemen. And they shall run before his chariots. And I'm emphasizing the word chariot. And then verse 12, at the end of verse 12, and they will make, your sons will have to make the instruments of his chariots. Now wait a minute, any spiritually minded Israelite would have remembered 
Deuteronomy 18 and the, the way that the king of Israel was not to have chariots. He was not to go to Egypt to take chariots. He was not to have chariots, but to trust in the Lord. And three times, God says, look, this king's going to have chariots. Now, really and truly, anyone who, who was aware of Deuteronomy, their ears should have pricked up and said, well, this isn't the guy for us then, because he's going to be disobedient to God's basic uh, commands about a king in Deuteronomy 18. And yet... They heard all this, they surely on one level saw the connection, and yet, no, we want a king. Then he goes on, Samuel goes on in verse 15, he will take the tenth of your seed, your vineyards, etc. And he's going to uh, put your, your men to his work, verse 16 and verse 17. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his servants. And I think the emphasis is on, on the word he and his because the idea of paying a tithe is that you paid it to your king. And, of course, the tithe was to go to, to God. And yet Samuel is saying, look, this guy is going to play God, and your tithe is going to go not to God, but to him. And to pay the tithe is to, to show that you are the servants of somebody. And he is going to have you as his servants. Now, look, do you want to be the servants of God or of this, this guy Saul? And he reasons with them, and they say, no, we want this man. It says in verse 19 that the people said, no, but we will have a king over us. Why do they say no? Well, it's not immediately clear in the context what they're saying no to. They're saying no to the implication, which is there in what Samuel has, has been saying. And this is absolutely true to uh, you know human experience, really, isn't it, that the clearer you put a, a spiritual case in front of somebody, they just shut their eyes and ears and go all the same for what they decided to do anyway. You remember uh, the whole sad business in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, that uh, the pilot is there and said, look, shall I crucify your king? Yes, 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 crucify him. But what evil has he done? And they shout even louder, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, and his blood be on us and on our children. So the more the reason was put to them, the more they shouted louder and drowned out the, the voice of, of, of reason and the voice of, of spirituality. And so it is, it seems to me, with our nature that we all have. And the more we read God's word and the more we really sense what he is saying to us, I think the stronger is the temptation for this kind of other side of us to kick in. I don't want to hear this and to focus simply on our passion, what I want. And I think this is the litmus test, really, of being the children of God and having ears and hearts that are open to his word, that if this is what he says, we will see the connection. And so that is something that we can take for, for all of us. And, of course, they, they say that, verse 20 of chapter 8, we want to be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Well, it was God who had gone before them, as Samuel pleads with them from the history of Israel. Um, it was God who had gone before them. You remember the angel went three days' journey in front of them and fought their battles. And that continued, really, in all their conflicts in their later history. But they didn't want that. They wanted something visible. They wanted some kind of leadership. And this basic desire for leadership 
is is very strongly inbuilt into human beings. To say that, well, yeah, my my ultimate pastor and shepherd is the Lord Jesus, is uh, a far more difficult thing to say and to believe than somebody who says, oh, yeah, my pastor or my priest uh, is called uh, John or Harry and he's down the road and you can see him visibly, etc. There is this pathetic desire for human leadership. We saw this when we looked at the story of Micah, didn't we, in Judges 17 and 18, not so long ago, that uh, Micah gets hold of this young guy who's as old as one of his kids and says, oh, please be to me a father and a priest. And I commented this pathetic desire that we have for human leadership. It's as if we, we really are little children in desperate search of a father. And the fact that God is consistently presented to us as our father and the Lord Jesus as our leader, etc., it can all wash over us in this desperate and pathetic desire for leadership that whoever stands up and shouts the loudest and bangs the Bible the hardest... Uh, becomes effectively the, uh, the leader of people. And this idea of having an invisible leader, that hour by hour we are listening to his voice, that he, in another metaphor of Paul, is our commanding officer, that he is our captain, all these kind of figures, we can very easily forget that and focus instead simply on, give me, give me somebody who can tell me what to do. You know, someone at the meeting, at the church or whatever, who is going to just tell me this is the way and walk in it. The whole idea of personal relationship with the Lord Jesus and with the Father on a purely personal level, taking our questions and issues to to them and in this sort of two-way mutual relationship, which there is hearing their voice to us in, in their word, is maybe less attractive because it demands so much more of us. It's so much easier to just uh, read a book even, or listen to somebody and say, yep, I tick that box, yeah, I'll go with this guy, he sounds, sounds pretty good. The, the idea of, of having Jesus as our personal Lord and God as our personal King is very, very demanding, because that cuts to the core of who you are with God. It cuts right to the core of your very most intimate and and personal relationship with him. And of course, in the last day, the foolish girls are rejected because the Lord says, I never knew you. They had had no personal relationship with him as their Lord. And this is something we really have to think about. And you can ask yourself, how often do I? Uh, talk to Jesus. How often do I pray to him? Not in the sense of requests, I mean, let your requests be made known to God, Paul says, but this reflection with him. How often do we do, we do that? Now, in this talk about the, the kingdom, of God being king and Israel being his kingdom, I, I su- suspect that uh, some of us have gone too far in reaction against the idea that oh, the kingdom of God is within you, all that means is look inside yourself, there's the kingdom. And yeah, that is not right. But it is also, I think, not the full picture to think that the kingdom of God is simply and solely and only a future appearance when the Lord Jesus will return to the earth and establish God's kingdom politically, if you like, on the earth, in terms of the the image of Daniel chapter 2. The little stone, you know, comes to the earth and and becomes a great mountain, and that symbolizes the return of Jesus and the establishment of the kingdom uh, on earth. 
on the, the ruins of all that's gone before. Yes, there is that political aspect to it, but that is not all. And I think if we think that's all there is to the kingdom of God, we are missing an awful lot. A king has a kingdom, and the kingdom, it's related to the word domination, um, the kingdom of the king is that uh, group of people over whom he reigns. And Israel were to be God's kingdom in the sense that they were to be his people. In the New Testament, we are told that God is our king and that the Lord Jesus is our king. And in fact, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul talks about the Lord Jesus as the only king. And we might read that pretty uh, painlessly and think, yeah, sure, Jesus is my only king. But actually, in first century terms, that was absolutely radical because Caesar was to be seen as the only king and the only lord. And to, to write things like that would have effectively made the New Testament an illegal document. And certainly uh, believing that, that there is another king, one, uh, one Jesus, uh, was absolute treason. Especially that he is the only king and the only lord. So it costs and it hurts a lot to really believe that God and the Lord Jesus are our king and we are his kingdom. That means that he reigns over us. And, of course, the principles by which he reigns, if we are to ask in practice, well, what does that mean? Well, you just have to look at so much of the teaching of Jesus, which says the kingdom of God is like this or like that. And you read those parables about the kingdom, and they're not about the physical, political establishment of the kingdom on earth. They are talking quite clearly about the reign of God and the principles of his son, concerning forgiveness, kindness, self-sacrifice, and so forth, in the lives of his people today. So the fact that the people said, we don't want God to be our king, and we're quite happy to not pay our tithes to God, uh, which is the physical sign that they were his people, <clears throat> that this was really a, a terrible thing to do, a rejection of him. Now, what actually immediately provoked them to, uh, to do this? Well, I think in our chapter here, chapter 12, verse 12, you see the reason. When you saw that Nahash, king of the children of Ammon, came against you, then you said to me, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. That little bit is not actually included in chapter 8. But there was an invasion by Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, and they said, ah, give us a king. We need a king to fight this guy. Well, actually, during the reign of Samuel, not the reign, but during the, uh, the, the judgeship, if you like, of Samuel, who was the last judge, he had delivered them out of the hand of their enemies. And that's in verse 11. He lists all these judges, Jeroboam, Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. If you just look back to chapter 7, that point is made about Samuel. Chapter 7, 13 and 14. The Philistines were subdued, they came no more within the border of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. So then, Samuel actually, during his time, had got deliverance for Israel from their enemies. And so when Nahash came against them, the Ammonites, 
they should have uh, taken the message and assumed and believed that God was going to likewise work through Samuel to deliver them from this guy as well. But they didn't take the hint because they didn't want to. Just as I say, when he gave more the hints about, look, Saul's going to have chariots, uh, going back to what God forbade for the king of Israel, they didn't want to take the hint. So God gave them a king even though he knew that this was going to lead them ultimately away from him. He gave them what they wanted, and Hosea says he he gave them a king in his anger. It was actually his wrath with them that meant that he he said yes. It reminds me a little bit of the, the father in the story of the prodigal son, that the son comes and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me the inheritance that should come to me when you die, but give it to me in this life. Well, of course the father guessed what the son was going to do with it. But he gives it to him. And of course, that wasn't the end. The father's desperately longing for the son to come back and to repent. And so God does give you what you ask for, ultimately, in some form or another. And the important thing then is to make sure that you're asking for the right thing, because you're quite likely to get it. But with all that getting, that may lead you away from God. Now, although God on one hand gave them what they wanted, and this is emphasized so many times in the record, that God gave it to them. He gave them this king that, uh, that they wanted. He does try to work through uh, th- this bad mistake that they had made. And every now and again there are these hints in the record that Samuel, on God's behalf, is trying to lead them out of this bad decision. So, okay, God sets them up in chapter 11. Nahash comes, attacks them, and yes, uh, Saul delivers them. And, of course, that was from God um, that that happened. See verse 13, today the Lord has wrought deliverance in Israel. Well, it looked like um, it was Saul that had done it. But, no, God was with him. And so, yes, okay, God worked through Saul. And then... 14, Samuel said to the people, come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. That's a very enigmatic phrase, to renew the kingdom, and the Hebrew for renew is normally translated to repair. So it would appear to me, although that phrase is very difficult to understand, I think that he's really saying, look, okay, you wanted deliverance from the Ammonites and you didn't trust me and God to give it to you, you wanted a human leader, okay, so then that upset God, but he gave you Saul, and yes, look, you're delivered from the Ammonites, now, let's go and renew the kingdom, and I think that that is the implication, what he's saying is, look, let's, uh, let's leave Saul, and let's, let's have God as our king again, and I would take verse 15 of chapter 11 then as a sort of an, an anticlimax, so the people went to Gilgal, where they're supposed to renew the kingdom, repair the kingdom, and there they made Saul king. Uh, I, I read that uh, negatively. That they didn't take the hint. Let's renew the kingdom, Samuel says, and they go and, and renew or restore or reaffirm Saul as their king. And so then what does Samuel do in response to that? Well, chapter 12, verse 5, he says, Look, the Lord is a witness against you. And verse 7, now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you, I'm reading from the RV, that I may plead with you. So this is a pleading with them. 
Now, again, I would say that this this pleading is in order to get them to, to, to retract what they had done by making Saul king. But, of course, the further along the path they went, the harder it was to come back, because once they'd made Saul king and he'd won this victory against Nahash, well, it all seemed pretty hunky-dory. And he, verse 14, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and hearken unto his voice, and both the, you and also the king that reigns over you be followers of the Lord your God well. He's saying, look, even though you've done all this, there is still the possibility of relationship with God if you really are going to be obedient to him. But they still don't really get it. And so he brings this great uh, thunderstorm upon them. And the thunderstorm, uh, verse 17, comes at the time of wheat harvest. So it knocked out their, their wheat harvest. And they say to him, verse 19, Pray for your servants unto the Lord your God that we die not. Now, maybe unconsciously, they were repeating the words of Pharaoh. When this uh, came down, this uh, great thunderstorm, the hail came down from God and destroyed the harvest of the, um, of, of the, the flax, etc., of the Egyptians, but not of the Israelites, then this is exactly what the Egyptians pray to, to Moses for. Please, can you pray unto the Lord your God that we die not? And the references there are Exodus 9.28 and Exodus 10.17. And maybe the, the record has been recorded in such a way as to draw attention to, uh, what they, to the similarity with Pharaoh. And again, God is trying to put them in a position to make them realize, look, you are fighting against me. You're, you're just like Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And I think as soon as they said those words, again, if they were spiritually minded, they would have thought, uh-oh, we've just put ourselves in the very position of Pharaoh, who was ultimately condemned by God, even though God kept on working with him to bring him to repentance, so it seems to me. So again, there's this opportunity to perceive if they had eyes to do it. And then verse 20, Samuel says to them, Fear not, you have indeed done all this evil, yet turn not aside from following the Lord. So he's saying, it's okay. Uh, that is okay. Um, you are still uh, within the, uh, the frame of possibility of salvation and relationship with God. Okay, play on, yet turn not aside from following the Lord. It reminds me of the situation with Balaam, where God did obviously, God didn't want him to go with the messengers of Balak, and he didn't want him to curse Israel. And yet, because he wants to go, eventually God says, yes, go. And you remember the, the ass stands in the, in the way and tries to stop him, and uh, then he, he beats it, and it's three times he does this, rather like three times... Uh, there's been this opportunity to, to go, and he's not supposed to go, but he does go. He's trying to fight against God. And yet God says to him, now go. Carry on going to Balak. It was almost as if God is saying, uh, you know, go with, uh, with these messengers, go to Balak, yet only the word that I have told you, that is what you must speak. 
In other words, he's saying, yes, go in this way that you are so set on, but the further down that road you get, the harder and harder it's going to be for you to be obedient to me. Very often, when we are going in a way that is not good, and particularly when we see others doing this, because it's easier, of course, to see it in others than in yourself, we can see how the idea is, ah, but there was this providential thing that happened that makes me feel that this is the way to go. And yes, maybe it was from God. God is pushing you down that road, but it's harder and harder the further you go down it to repent. And what Balak should have done, uh, what Balaam should have done is to say, yeah, hang, uh, Lord, I'm going back home. Forget this. And the same here, they should have stopped and gone back and said, yeah, okay. You've thundered upon us. We realize that we have sinned. We have, 19, we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. Okay, well then, why not just change and go back and renew the kingdom, repair the kingdom, as Samuel had tried to get them to do? But no, they, they realize on one hand what they're doing, but they still go on. And then verse 22, he says something quite profound. The Lord will not forsake his people. In other words, you are God's people. Even though you don't really want him to be your God and your king, yet you are still his And this is the basis of God's abiding love for Israel. And it's sort of repeated by Paul when he says that even if we deny him, he abides faithful because he cannot deny himself. I almost wonder if he had in mind this incident here because it's very similar. God will be faithful despite our unfaithfulness. And yet, as he says in 25, if you shall still do wickedly, you shall be consumed, both you and your king. Well, it took how many generations to the time of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, um, generations of God's patience with this situation, his trying to work with them in all this. Final point from 23, as for me, Samuel says, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Now, if ever you wanted uh, an example of sin of omission, you have it here. That it would be sin if he stopped praying for them. I tend to think that sin is what you commit. And if I keep my nose clean day by day, well, what have I done wrong? Well, the whole point is that sin is of omission as well as commission. And that's a fairly scary thing here, that you can sin by not praying. And, you know, quite frankly, Samuel, we would say, humanly speaking, was justified legitimately in giving up with these guys and saying, yeah, look, what's the point with you people? You, I've tried and tried with you. God has tried and tried with you. And yet you still, although you recognize you're sinning, you just want to go helter-skelter in this way that's before you. Now, if Saul, for example, had not succeeded in saving Jabesh Gilead from Nahash, well, that might have made them rethink. But God gave them the victory. That's what they wanted, so God gave it to them. But actually, by doing that, he was making it harder for them to turn back to him. We struggle trying to attach meaning to event in our lives and that of others, and I think that the difficulty is that God can work in in two streams, in two directions at the same time, or multiple directions, um, with with a person or with a group or with a situation. Like, in one sense, he's giving them what they want. He's answering their prayers. But in another sense, he's working in another direction to bring them back to him and to convict them of the sin of going in that way that they're going. 
all we can say is that the way that is before us is in Jesus. The, the golden law is what would Jesus do? And he is the way. And we are to walk and to run, in fact, in that way. And somehow, if you can get in that sense that this is the way God wants me to go, and then you run in that way, not trying to force things to force things through to just go your way, that is the way to peace. And that is the way to seeing very clearly positive meaning to event in your life. And that is the way to God's kingdom.